There's a spirit in our land raising up the kind of man with a burning in his heart to be free. Like the preacher man of old, he can't be bought, he can't be sold. What did they preach? They preached liberty. Exercise of their God-given rights Granted them at the time of their birth The right to speak their arms and pray Worship God on land and say From bad law we will keep our people free Through the jury we'll guard our liberty Accounting for his disregard of law Told their people not to yield before his threats For God established rulers to protect the rights of man And ordained government to fit into his plan To maintain his people's liberty Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights Granted them at the time of their birth The right to speak their arms and pray Worship God on land and say From bad law we will keep our people free Through the jury we'll guard our liberty Such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from bad law we will keep our people free, through the jury we'll guard our liberty, liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them at the time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God not guilty we choose to acquit the state was wrong to charge him this law is not fit for a people who love their liberty for a people who will die for liberty greetings ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the voice of liberty this is rick tyler thanking you for tuning in and thanking you for persevering in the battle for truth. And that's what this life really is all about. If you are in tune with the Spirit of God, if you are seeking after uh, His will, His direction, 
if you are seeking to serve him in your life, if you are seeking to offer up to him in a proper way the level of commitment and dedication that he requires. And yes, he does require that. In Romans chapter 12, we are told, verses 1 and 2, that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then we are told by the Apostle Paul that this is but our reasonable service. In other words, there's nothing really outstanding or nothing stupendous about the fulfillment of this passage of Scripture. Instead, it is merely reasonable. And indeed, it is. Because after all, think about it for a minute. We are created by and we are called to serve the very God who spoke the universe into existence. We are called to serve the God of Scripture who is immortal, invisible, eternal, ever-living, without beginning, without end, all-knowing, omnipresent, all-powerful. The attributes of the God that we serve are endless. And we, by comparison, of course, we are frail, we are fallen, we are broken, we are very much blemished, and of course, we are imperfect to an extraordinary degree. And yet, he has made us acceptable in his sight by a blood sacrifice that took place historically on our behalf that we might be redeemed. The scripture says, Know ye not that you are bought with a price? The Gospel of Mark tells us that he gave his life a ransom for many, it says. A ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. We know that Romans chapter 9 tells us, in a foundational sense, about a doctrinal position that we would refer to as election. God has the prerogative to do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. And indeed, the record of history, biblical and otherwise, bears out that there is a sovereign God sitting on the throne of this universe, and that, of course, once again, we know through divine revelation, through biblical truth and knowledge, that we have the opportunity to serve him, to be cleansed by the blood of our Messiah, our Savior, the perfect sacrificial Lamb, who without spot and without blemish went to the cross, died an agonizing death, and of course then proceeded to fulfill all manner of messianic pro uh, prophecy. We know that that after three days and three nights, he rose from the dead. He broke the chains of death 
of sin, enabling the Apostle Paul to say to the church at Corinth, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And yes, without this wondrous provision for the salvation and the eternal life of his people, we would be pathetic. We would be miserable. We would be lost eternally and, of course, lost in this life as well because without a compass, without the bearings that that his sovereignty and his truth provides for us, we would be absolutely lost on a tumultuous sea of sin, wickedness, depravity. But, alas, we are not in that dire predicament. We are not in that helpless and hopeless condition. Instead, we have wondrous power. There is truth abounding that we have the ability and opportunity to lay hold of that we might, by consecrating all that we have been given by him, by his benevolence, that we might, even in this life, achieve victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. That in this life, we might be the battle axes of the God of Scripture, that we might be his weapons of warfare, that we might be his ambassadors, that we might be his emissaries to a lost and dying world, that we might be the evangelists taking the message of hope and salvation to our our lost kinsmen scattered abroad throughout the land who number in great multitudes and who desperately need to hear the message of hope, of truth and salvation, and again, of victory. Not only in the eternal spectrum, but also in the temporal realm. For after all, we have been given this life, which is of temporal dimensions and proportions, that we might lay up treasure in heaven, that we might accrue uh, to our benefit in the realm of eternity, great favor, great blessing, great reward. The parable of the talents makes this clear to us that in the kingdom yet to come, we have the very real prospect and opportunity to be able to wield significant influence and serve in a stewardship capacity in perpetuity, in direct proportion to what we do, to what we achieve, and to how we invest the gifts and the talents and the resources that he bestows to us in the here and now. Now, I lay all of this out in a foundational manner because it is exceedingly pertinent that we ponder a very profound question. If we read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, we we read the following. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, 
good master? What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18 says, He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But with God all things are possible. Now, of course, this is one of many, many extraordinary accounts in the Gospels of the the actual words and works and deeds that were that were done and were performed by our Messiah. And each and every one of these accounts is rich, is heavy laden with profundity and with great inspiration and even capable of of giving us a spine-chilling sensation as we consider who precisely Jesus is, what his mission was, how in his life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection and ascension that he fulfilled well in excess of 300 messianic prophecies of great specificity in the Old Testament. The odds, numerically speaking, of of all of these prophecies being fulfilled with the precision accuracy that they were, the odds of this happening in and of themselves are so, so astronomical in terms of the in terms of the extraordinary mathematical improbability 
of this happening, that, that this fact alone proves the veracity of the biblical account. There is no way that the Word of God could be of human origin. It is of divine origin. And this, by virtue of this one fact alone that I am alluding to inciting, is irrefutable. The odds, again, would prevent it from being possible. And of course, that's one of the great one of the great aspects of this creation, the mathematical precision with which it is ordered. I even read an article recently from a secular source that was pondering the possibility that mathematical reality and truth may lead to the conclusion that Darwinian evolution is false and that instead intelligent design, as they like to call it, is reality, borne out by mathematical considerations. It's interesting when even secular, agnostic, atheistic, scoffing, cynical sources will happen to blurt out truth on occasion, thus testifying to the power and the superseding capabilities of that very truth. Well, again, in this chapter of Scripture, Matthew chapter 19, we are reading this account of this well-to-do young man who was asking that question which is commonly pondered by man, by fallen man. What must I do? Along the way of life, it is not uncommon for fallen man to pause intermittently and to consider his lost state of being. And as he enters into this consideration, it is not uncommon for him to to wonder, sometimes aloud, what must I do? What does the future hold in terms of eternity? Man has a built-in awareness that it's not all about just this life. That there must, of necessity, there must be life beyond this mortal, temporal sphere of existence. Of course, false religions concoct erroneous variations as to what awaits man in eternity. Reincarnation is very, very much a cornerstone of Eastern religion. The belief that that the incorporeal component of man's being continues to come back in different life forms or bodily forms and that man is essentially reincarnated. But reincarnation does not have any biblical foundation or basis. In fact, we are told that 
it is appointed unto every man once to die, and then the judgment. And there is no biblical evidence that that man is reincarnated over and over again and comes back in different life forms or as different people. Now, some people point to the the fact that you have uh, similar types throughout in a cyclical fashion throughout history, that if there were such a thing as reincarnation, it would be uh, a good starting point of ponderance or consideration. For instance, Bill and Hillary would certainly seem to be good candidates if reincarnation were true, uh, to be the reincarnation of Ahab and Jezebel. But this is more attributable to the common sin nature that is shared by the people in question and the inordinate proclivity to lust after power and to be able to descend to the depths of depravity like Ahab and Jezebel or Bill and Hillary Clinton. Two contemporary examples of the manifestation of such acute and extraordinary levels and degrees of evil that it stretches the limits of our imagination as to how people can be so evil. And yet we know that they are simply emblematic of and representative of a very large body of individuals who have been unwilling to pursue God's plan for redemption. The entertainer Frank Sinatra, of course, had a signature song, I Did It My Way. He was so proud of the fact that he took the blows and did it his way, his own way. And, of course, we know that Sinatra had a very successful and colorful career. And he was, of course, he was idolized, he was adored by countless people throughout the world, throughout the West in particular. He, of course, had a string of, of love interests throughout his career. And yet, toward the end of his life, there's evidence as to the insecurity that he was experiencing. It was on a talk show one, at one time when his daughter was asked how her aging and ailing father was doing. And her somber response was that, that her father was coming to grips with his mortality. Translation. He was ending or nearing the end of his life. He recognized that he had lived a life to a very large degree of, of sin and debauchery and callous indifference to the law of God. He realized that he was nearing the end of his earthly so- sojourn and, and he was sweating bullets. He was quite fearful of what awaited him. And it's interesting that we see the evidence of this evolution uh, in people's thinking. We see evidence of it in the lives and the actions and the words of individuals, even in the religious realm, in the pseudo-Christian world of TV evangelism. Similarly, the evangelist known for his theatrics and slaying people in the spirit, as they call it, Benny Hinn, I am told, has been known 
in recent times to begin to backtrack and recalibrate his teaching and his doctrine and has begun to exhibit and manifest what many interpret as genuine concern about what he is facing once he goes through that portal into eternity. And so this rich young ruler, this wealthy, well-to-do young man who was in possession of considerable earthly resources, he was pondering that age-old question, what must I do? And of course, our Messiah told him that he had to keep the commandments and he was quick to essentially tout his own track record of having kept commandments since he was young. But then Jesus upped the ante and he told this individual what it was that he would need to do to deal with the the looming prospect of eternal destiny. And of course, what was prescribed for this individual by the very incarnation of God there before him in the flesh, the spotless Lamb of God, the the Savior of the Israel people of God. What was told by this well-to-do young man was that he would have to divest himself of all of his earthly wealth. And if he did that, of course, he would be able to have treasure in heaven. And, of course, he would also be able to come and follow Jesus right then and there. Imagine if you were living in that time. You know, we often hear people say, and probably most of us have said, that we are living in amazing, extraordinary, incredible times. Many people, of course, believe that that they are living in what could be the end of the age. And when you really believe that, that is a pretty astonishing reality. Whether it's true or not, if you really believe it, then that should have some very significant, profound uh, effects on how you live your life. I like to point out how churches very often will proclaim a message of the imminent return of Christ, and then they'll build a building that will last 100 years. What do they really believe? Well, if you really believe that you're living at the end of the age, that should affect the way you conduct your affairs, should it not? Now, we may be living at that time. That's a subject for for future endeavor, eschatology, very deep, very fascinating. Tremendous amount of error proliferates regarding that theological heading or subject. But at any rate, if we are, which is certainly possible, what an amazing fact and reality uh, to be in the generation that might see the culmination of the age of human history as we know it. But even more astonishing would be to have lived in the time when Jesus walked the earth, when he was right there with this individual that we're reading about in this account in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, right there talking to him, 
giving him the opportunity to have treasure in heaven by an act of obedience that he was prescribing for him, and then also to actually be able to follow him. And it is quite amazing when we think that this proposition was turned down. Now, we know that when Jesus called the different disciples, uh, for instance, it says that, and straightway they left their nets and followed him. In other words, they left what they were doing. They left their life's occupation and followed after him. Why? Because they were given supernaturally the ability to understand the mysteries of the kingdom and to understand the profound level of significance that was indicated by the time that they were living in and the fact that they were face-to-face with the Messiah, he who would fulfill those multitudes of Messianic Old Testament prophecies. And straightway they left their nets and followed him, the Scripture tells us. But it did not say, and straightway this well-to-do young man left his earthly wealth and followed him. Instead, he went away sorrowful. This was a bridge too far. He could not do this. And of course, the truth pierced to the quick. It pierced to the very core of his being. Now, the point I really want to emphasize moving forward is that with God, all things are possible. Jesus had pointed out in the wake of this experience to his disciples that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. What does this metaphor mean? Is he talking about a literal camel and a literal eye of a literal needle? Or is he talking about that gate that went into Jerusalem, that small gate, relatively speaking, that was called the eye of the needle that a real-life camel might be able to squeeze through under very difficult uh, conditions and circumstances, but nevertheless it would be possible. Well, there are many idioms and metaphors in the Bible that uh, we aren't necessarily given an elaboration on, but one thing's for sure. Either way, it would require divine assistance and intervention. There has to be the divine component of the equation or else it's not going to happen. And of course, this should cause people to be very contemplative about the acquisition of earthly wealth. We know that we are admonished and cautioned as to the dangers of laying up treasure on earth versus laying up treasure in heaven. And if we allow ourselves to be like this well-to-do young man, we could find ourselves in the same ultimate predicament. And of course, we know that Jesus said that no man can serve two masters, that it is impossible to serve both God and mammon. But, again, getting back to this text that we have focused on in this broadcast, 
With God, all things are possible. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? And if you do believe it, do you do you bear witness and testimony under that belief by your actions? Or are you instead like those modern churches who claim to believe one thing, but then by their actions belie doubt and skepticism as to the veracity of that professed belief? Again, those churches that, that claim that the return of Christ is imminent. They're certain about that as they build that building that will last a hundred years. Well, we need to make sure, we need to take stock and inventory in our own lives and make sure that we are consistent, that we are not being colossal hypocrites like the Pharisees or like the modern contemporary Pharisees that proliferate in this world around us. And I raise this question because there increasingly seems to be no hope. There seems to be no hope of ever rolling back the flood tide of evil and vanquishing those forces who who have usurped power and authority in modern America and throughout the world today and who are driving us incessantly and relentlessly toward a hell-on-earth configuration that we know as globalism or the new world order. Is it not bordering on unbelievable how these sinister forces are able throughout the years and the decades and even the generations to continue to rack up victory after victory after victory in their domination and suppression of human spirit and human rights the inalienable rights that God has bequeathed and granted to us? Is it not detestable and depressing to view the track record of success that these forces of evil have attained unto themselves relative to their ability to strip us systematically of all of our rights and liberties to the point where we are now finding ourselves inundated by and in the midst of conditions and circumstances that are teetering on the brink of overt, outright, unadulterated, unmitigated tyranny and police state type circumstances. How have we gotten to this point, I ask you? What sequence of events, what mistakes and errors on the part of our fathers, our forefathers, have led us to this precipice that we are now standing at, gazing into the abyss of abominable, horrific future conditions and circumstances? Are we on the verge of seeing a sea change type transition such as has been experienced in the past in countries like Russia when the Bolsheviks took over, in the Eastern European former Eastern Bloc nations of the Soviet Union? Are we 
verging on a situation such as was experienced by the people of Cuba when Castro took over? Are we getting ready to take the plunge into unabashed tyranny? Many people believe we are. I certainly believe that that there is a very real prospect that such circumstances and conditions are imminent, getting ready to come crashing down on us. There is an attitude, of course, that is common to our people that basically can be summarized in a it-can't-happen-here type phrase or statement or mentality. Somehow people believe against the blatant reality that's staring them in the face. They believe that it can't happen here, even when it is happening here. Now let us remind ourselves that nothing happens apart from the sufferance of Almighty God and His choice to allow it to happen. Because, again, He is in control of everything. He spoke the universe into existence. He has vast, immeasurable power that our, relatively and comparatively speaking, our tiny minds and brains cannot even begin to process and comprehend the reality of His power so vastly dwarfs ours as to be not even worthy of of any type of comparison whatsoever. And yet, he has given us sufficient understanding to be able to delineate and decipher and to interpret not only his holy word, but also how it applies to present-day circumstances as well as history and to formulate conclusions and uh, hypotheses and, and theories as to what is likely to transpire in the days ahead. Logic, of course, is part of this process. Logic is itself a science. We can prove the existence of God by the science of logic. And using logic and wisdom, we are able, indeed, to speculate and to plot a course, a trajectory, that is predictive of of where we might be headed. And again, today it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that we are getting ready to take the plunge into something that has no precedent in our own personal experience or our collective experience as a nation or even a civilization. The malevolent diabolical forces of evil, they are savoring what they believe is their imminent conquest over the peoples of the earth. Sadly and and unfortunately, but very uh, truthfully, there is the ability, there exists the ability for a very small cadre of people unified in their commitment to their dastardly manifesto and agenda. It is possible for them, relative though they be in number, or rather minuscule though they be in number, it is possible for them to exercise controlling power over the masses of humanity. 
The Bolsheviks, of course, who took power in Russia in 1917, they were relatively small in number, but they were well financed by clandestine, secretive sources. And they were in possession of a manifesto, uh, a blueprint for action, that enabled them to embark upon a course of action that would subsequently bring tyranny and terror upon the people of the land and would reduce them to a state of slavery, for lack of a better term. Total government power over the people. That's what communism is. It's brutal. It's vicious. It's murderous. And it, by design, it makes examples of people so as to strike terror into the hearts of the others who are watching and observing its juggernaut of power as it devours up the rights and the liberties of the people. Are we on the verge of succumbing to this fate in modern America and in the Western world? Are we getting ready to take the plunge? Are the neo-Bolsheviks getting ready to tighten the screws on and tighten the noose on us? Are they going to bring out the guillotines? Are they going to uh, bring out all of the insidious components of their arsenal to begin to use against us to systematically pick us off and make examples to terrorize others by what they do to certain individuals? We look at what they're doing relative to the recent events on January 6th at the nation's capital. And here, of course, we have this band of, of cutthroat traitors who themselves, if they were brought to the bar of justice, could be readily and easily convicted of treason, could be subjected to the tenets of due process of law, and could be very rightfully given the death penalty under due process of law in an orderly, properly functioning constitutional republic, which we were given by our forefathers and at one time, we had the blessing and benefit of living under. Now, we have thrown the truth to the four winds. We have thrown caution to the four winds. We have allowed the enemies of truth and the enemies of the God of Scripture to accrue such power unto themselves that we are relatively impotent in the face of this wickedness. And clearly, out of their own mouth, the testimony is abundant and clear as to what they are preparing to do. This band of cutthroats, this band of traitors, is up there having the audacity, the gall, to accuse patriotic, fervent, devoted Americans who came to the nation's capital in mass to support justice, to support the overthrowing of the criminal process whereby the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. They were there to, to stand up for truth, to stand up for their rights, to protest the unmitigated criminality that was going on under their noses and before their very eyes. And there was a contrived and manipulated circumstance that resulted in provocateurs being able to incite a very, very measured degree of 
violent confrontation between a tiny percentage of the crowd assembled in D.C. that day between them and a very small contingency of law enforcement personnel. This was all part of a plan. It was provocateur. It was successful in terms of generating the optics, the visuals, that could be then presented to a very malleable public and somehow interpreted as or twisted into somehow the notion of the occurrence of insurrection. It doesn't even begin to measure up to the definition of the term insurrection. And yet the word insurrection has been hammered away at. It has been used repeatedly in a flawed and false definition of what happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C. The evidence is overwhelming to the contrary of the narrative that has been put forth as unbridled propaganda. But again, these arch criminals, these villains who illicitly occupy their usurped positions of power, who themselves have stolen elections and have amassed unto themselves fortunes in criminal fashion. These characters, these nefarious and odious and wicked personages, they sit there and they espouse this falsity, this lie from the pit of hell that somehow the legions of Trump supporters that came to D.C. on that day were involved in insurrection. Now, just for the record, according to the Declaration of Independence, the people would have every right in the world to go en masse to the Capitol today and to take matters into their own hands and to depose by force these wicked, evil people who are so far outside of the boundaries of the Constitution that they clearly are traitors. They clearly are guilty of treason. And they clearly have amassed unto themselves ill-gotten fortunes, illicitly gained fortunes. It would be very much within the absolute inalienable rights as are elucidated relative to in the Declaration of Independence. It would be totally within the rights of the people to take matters into their own hands and do what the Declaration describes when it says that when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object <clears throat> reduces or evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. It would be completely within the rights of the people today to put those words, those eloquent words of the Declaration of Independence into action. It may not be tactically wise to try to do that at this point, but it would be thoroughly justifiable from a legal, constitutional, moral, and ethical standpoint. And of course, this is one reason why the tyrants that inhabit the positions of power in Washington, D.C., that they tremble and quake with fear at the prospect of an armed citizenry 
doing that very thing, taking matters into their own hands. Those legions of people that came to D.C. on that day trying to fight against the theft of a presidential election that happened flagrantly and openly in broad daylight, those people who came that day, they were the salt of the earth. They represented the finest of our republic today. Many of them engaged in great personal sacrifice to be there on that day. They missed work. They spent excessive sums of money for lodging and traveling, all of the inflated expenses of Washington, D.C., spending in some cases five, six, seven hundred dollars for hotel accommodations that were basically bottom tier accommodations. So again, these were dedicated people. They were not criminals. And it is unconscionable that the so-called Justice Department of the national government of this country today is bringing criminal charges against scores or hundreds or potentially even thousands of these people. Well, is it really true that with God all things are possible? Do we have any hope? That is the $64 million question right now. Do we really have hope or are we hopelessly consigned to a future of abject slavery, oppression, bondage at the hands of brutal tyrants and taskmasters, perverted, sick, depraved, demented people who have been given over to a reprobate mind. Yes, the horrific criminality that that we have come to be aware of, it is very, very much present in the fabric of our current national circumstances. The pedophiles, the murderers of children and babies. They have no compunction about murdering babies in the womb. And now it is becoming increasingly evident they have no compunction about murdering children that have already been born, what we call infanticide. They have no no hesitation or equivocation whatsoever in terms of murdering elderly people in nursing homes. They have no hesitancy in terms of rolling out and delivering in mass a vaccine which is exceedingly likely to rack up a death toll in the tens, if not hundreds of millions in the days ahead. These people have no conscience. It has been seared with a hot iron. They have been given over to a reprobate mind. They serve Lucifer himself, who Jesus said in John 8, was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. But the question is, the $64 million question, is everything really possible or anything possible with God? With God, all things are possible. Is this true? And if so, what must we do to avail ourselves of this stupendous truth? What must we do to marshal whatever must be marshaled and implemented in the way of the combination of of tangible as well as spiritual forces and powers 
that we might begin to chip away at and roll back this flood tide of evil, that we might be able, like our forefathers have done in ages past, begin to carve out a pocket of sanity in an otherwise wicked and insane world. Are there any new frontiers? And if not, are there any internal frontiers that we might reestablish? These are questions that we must be asking ourselves because the burden is squarely upon our shoulders to act in a manner consistent with what our founding fathers did in the 1776 era. If we are going to lead forth and begin the process whereby we might be able to purchase life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness for ourselves and our posterity. There's a great piece called The Price They Paid about what it actually cost the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence in their time in order to to achieve what they did. Many of them, of course, paid the ultimate price. Before we conclude, I do want to let you know, as we customarily do, how you might communicate with us you can write to us at Post Office Box 274, Etowah, E-T-O-W-A-H, Tennessee, 37331. Or you can phone us at 423 area code 241-7902. Again, that's P.O. Box 274, Etowah, Tennessee, 37331, or phone number 423-241-7902. Or you can email us at voiceofliberty1776 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you if you so choose or desire. And remember, what we're looking for in this time we're living in right now is in effect the 7,000, the remnant, the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I mentioned Ahab and Jezebel earlier. Elijah was fearful of the reprisals of Ahab and Jezebel after he did what he did to the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And God reminded him that there were 7,000 in the land who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And that's what we're looking for today. We're looking for that 7,000, that remnant of God. Because as we know from Scripture and from accounts in the Bible, There's no set number of people that are required by our God, by our great mighty God, in order to achieve and attain the victory over the forces of evil. In fact, very often, God revels and delights in using a relative minuscule number of people to turn the tide of history, to send the enemy to flight. And God raises up individuals, or he raises up small groupings of people for that very purpose. And wouldn't it be wondrous? Would, not, would it not be extraordinarily exciting in this day and time to be counted among such a company, to be counted among a group of such individuals who might be used by the sovereign hand of God to be instrumental in altering the course of history? Can it happen? Well, Again, I remind you of what the scripture says that we began this broadcast with. With God, all things are possible. And of course, our backs are to the wall. 
We've been painted into a corner. We, of course, have done much of this to ourselves. The devil hasn't had to lift a finger in many respects because it has been very, very much at the surface level of our people's hearts and minds today to seek to worship mammon instead of God and, of course, to consciously reject truth not being willing to pay the corresponding price that must be paid if we are consciously desirous of standing for the truth. And so, in a very real way, we have it coming. We deserve everything that we're getting ready to have delivered unto us, but we serve a God of infinite proportions. He is a God of of great mercy, great compassion, and great desire to do that which is favorable and beneficial toward his people, his elect people, his chosen people. And we, of course, are so blessed to be that very people. We have been given an inheritance that that the other people of this world have not been given. But along with that inheritance comes great responsibility that we have shirked, that we have failed to exercise in the unfolding of time. So we must make haste now to repent as a people, as a community, as a nation, ultimately even. But the process whereby we seek after corrective measures, where we seek to roll back the flood tide of evil, it must begin at the local level. It must begin at the county level, I believe. People have tried the township level in the past. That's what Gordon Call was doing back in 83. But the county level is far more viable, plausible, realistic, and even has ample and abundant precedent in the annals of our history. And so this is the level that we need to focus our attention at as we endeavor to engender true, genuine, spiritual revival, and then as we begin to to set forth an agenda, a course of direction that would be firmly reliant upon the tenets, the principles, the truths of the Word of God, the law of God. Yes, the gospel of the kingdom not only references the kingdom in eternity yet to come, but also in this time that we're living in, the here and now, the seeking after and building of that proverbial city whose builder and maker is God, that shining city on a hill that cannot be hid. Until our next broadcast, this is Rick Tyler thanking you for tuning in and inviting you to be with us in the days ahead as we work together toward the fulfillment of the will of our great and mighty God. We need such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, exposed tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them. Time of their birth, the right to speak.